How many of you guys are self-medicators? Self-medicators. I remember one time when we were living in Dubai, uh, the Dubai aspect will become relevant, uh, but when I was in Dubai, my neck just started getting really itchy and red, like unbearable. Instead of going to the doctor, I just took to the internet. It was so much faster, I thought. It was so much easier, and in fact, so much cheaper. I did not I did not have to see the doctor, which of course saved me a few hours of the day, right? Who, who wouldn't benefit from that? And besides that, who needed the doctor anyway? In Dubai, you can buy all sorts of medicine that here in America you might need a prescription for. You can just turn up there to the drugstore and buy it without a prescription. So all I needed to do was figure out what my problem was, give myself the diagnosis, and give myself my own treatment. So in my wisdom, after spending a little bit of time on Google, I thought I had discovered the problem and my remedy, and off to the pharmacy I went. Uh, I went and bought a cream. I, I just had this issue. I went and bought this cream that uh, I thought I had needed to get better. Well, it turns out that within a couple of days of self-medicating, my problem actually got worse. The redness and the itchiness just spread. I thought I had some crazy infection. Uh, but really, as you, you'll eventually know, I went to the doctor and he just said, you just have inflammation of your follicles on your hair from shaving. That's all he said. So I go to the professional for help for a diagnosis and a remedy and was being given a treatment by the doctor. I followed the doctor's orders and within hours of following the doctor's orders, I was feeling better. So much for saving a few hours of my day self-medicating actually extended my discomfort for days. So much for self-medicating being more convenient, I just diagnose my problem on my own, come up with a remedy on my own, but doing so just cut me off from taking advantage of the dermatologist's expertise, which was informed, of course, by his wealth of knowledge and decades of experience. I was a straight-up fool. First, my wife basically thought I was crazy and laughed at me while I was researching my own uh, solution here. Then on top of that, I go to the dermatologist and she rebukes me. All right, but even though I was a fool, everyone involved was glad to see my neck get better. Friends, this morning we encounter a problem of self-medication. And of course, it is not a problem with the body that the people had. It's a problem with the soul. Our pastor today warns us against such soul self-medication and calls us actually to take advantage of all of God's experience, informed by his infinite knowledge, his power, and infinite amount of experience, diagnosing man's problem and offering real power Remedies for a real salvation. Please join me in turning in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 4. And we are in verses 13 to 17. And today, from today's passage, we look at the great physician's remedy to our soul problem, our sin problem. And here we have the main point. The main point is, because God saves by grace, man must therefore be saved by faith. 
Because God saves by grace, man must therefore be saved by faith. Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. I'll go ahead and read that once, and then I'm going to go ahead and explain the background. It's important to know the background to fully understand it, but we'll just go ahead and read it. And then as we go through the sermon, I'll reread the passage as is appropriate. Look there, 4.13. It says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring... That he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the inheritance of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the inheritor of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. For those of you who might be new to the Bible, maybe this is your first time actually opening the scriptures and looking at it, the Bible has all sorts of different types of genres of writings or different types of types of writings. So there are, for example, historical books. There are, for example, books of poetry like the book of Proverbs or Psalms. There are even books that speak about the future, whether you're looking at the prophetic books or a book like Revelation. It, this book right here that we look at today that we return to, because we haven't been in it for a couple weeks, this book right here is just simply a letter written by a real person to real people. And the letter he was writing, uh, this letter to the Romans, was to Roman Christians. Uh, it was written around the middle of the 50s AD, and he's writing to a church of both Jews and Gentiles, or Jews and non-Jews. Very much like a church like us, like a mixed group, a multicultural, multi-ethnic group here. And um, without doubt, it is important to know the context of the letter. So imagine if someone were to write you guys a letter like that's 20 pages long, and then all of a sudden you just open it up and you begin reading. Right? You're, it's going to help you to know where we are in the in the guy's letter uh, to fully understand it here. So a one-word summary of this entire letter is simply gospel or good news. That is what gospel means. And Paul here is excited to talk about it. In fact, in the book of Romans chapter 15, he says that he wants to take this gospel to Spain. And why is why Spain? Because the gospel had never been preached there before. Jesus Christ had arrived. He had lived the perfect life. He had died a death for sin. He had been raised from the dead. And so this good news that people get, can be forgiven through the death of Jesus Christ, Paul wants to take that to the ends of the earth. And so he's excited to talk about the righteousness of God that has been revealed in the gospel. Uh, but as he begins talking about the gospel, this good news, he sets it up by speaking about the bad news. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, 23 to 24. And there you have both the bad news and the good news. And you see kind of what's going on. He sets up the good news, but first talks about the bad news. He says there in 3, 23 and 24, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's bad news earning just condemnation in hell, even, the Bible says. But here's the good news. They are justified, that is, declared righteous in front of a righteous God, declared righteous by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So you see the sole problem. 
We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all stand before God without excuse. We stand before him condemned. That's our sole problem. Our hearts are wayward from our maker and our very own creator. The good news, the doctor's remedy is Jesus Christ. We can be justified, declared righteous as a free gift according to his grace through what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. This is the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that Paul was so eager to take to the ends of the earth. But while Paul was eager to preach it, not everybody was eager to embrace it. Some just didn't like it. We know that Paul had many conversations with objectors, those who disagreed with him. And they brought up those objections. And so as he's a missionary going around the Mediterranean, right, he takes all of those objections, all of that knowledge, and pours them into all of his letters. But here in Romans, you see him, if you were to read it, it takes some afternoon and some of the time in the afternoon you should go ahead and read through the whole entire thing. You can tell he's bringing up the objections and then he's answering them. He's knocking them all down. And one huge objection that he tackles is thinking that one can achieve righteousness through doing. Through doing the law instead of loving the God of the law. Many folks were self-medicating with morality. And guys, that issue is not just a first century issue. That is an issue here today with us, with many of us. People who think that, oh, you know, if I just do a good deed for the day, then I'm good with, then I'm getting good with God. Or I can keep good standing with God. So some of you guys even here today may have thought that, oh, I didn't read the Bible this morning, and therefore I am not in good favor with God, right? That's self-medication. That's thinking that you can solve your unrighteousness, that's your problem, soul problem, with doing. Look at three, chapter 3, verse 28, though. Paul holds out the true gospel solution. He says, though, that we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Praise God for that. He offers the true remedy, justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, all according to God's grace as a gift. This way in which God has justified or saved people, he has always done that. If you're taking notes, now we get into the first official point here. God justifies sinners by grace through faith, as he always has. Never has it been through works of the law. And Romans chapter 4 is evidence of this. So you're wondering, okay, we're in Romans chapter 4. We've been in Romans chapter 4 before. We will be next week as well. Romans chapter 4 is just an example, an outplaying of what came previously which really is, is, can be summed up in 27 to 31 of chapter 3. So he writes there, right? There is no boasting when we are saved by grace through faith. Boasting is excluded. It's not according to a law of works, but it is a law of faith. And this law of faith can be had by anybody who believes, whether they be Asian background, Hispanic background, Jewish background, Gentile background. Everybody who believes, who has faith in God, can be saved. And Abraham takes up all of chapter 4. Abraham is just an example. It's just an outworking. It's just historical proof of this fact that God is always justified by grace through faith. He justifies those who believes, those who believe on him. Essentially, Romans chapter 4 is an explanation, an exegesis, an exposition of the passage that Vinny read to us earlier. Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 6. God had given Abraham promises that he would make them into a multitude, that many people would come from his line, that those people would inherit a land, and that one from Abraham's line would be a blessing to all nations. 
And we know that from Genesis, sorry, from Galatians, that that line, that person from the line, that seed from the line, is Christ Jesus. So, so God draws near to Abraham all by his grace and grants him these promises all by God's grace, of course. And Abraham, what does he do? God leads him in front of the stars and says, look, here, here's what I created. Will you believe me or not? If you can count the stars, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believes God. He trusts in him and is justified. We walk through chapter 4. We see this very clearly. Abraham was not saved by any works because Abraham had nothing to boast about before God. God chose once again to draw near to Abraham. Out of everybody on the face of the planet, he draws near to that pagan man from a pagan land and bestows upon him blessing upon blessing. God had promised the promises, people and blessings. These are God-initiated promises. What does the scripture say? You look there at 4.4. Abraham believed God, and it was credited, counted to him as righteousness. It doesn't say Abraham set out to work for righteous standing. Scripture does not say that God waited for Abraham to fulfill the law. It says that he believed, and that it was credited to him as Righteousness. He believed God and his promises. If you think about it, you know, what else is there but belief? If God is the one who draws near to sinners, if God is the one who initiates promises, and if God is the one who fulfills the promises, what else is there but belief? The rest of chapter 4 is an affirmation of the fact that God justifies by grace through faith. If you were taking notes, you can write this down. Verses 1 to 8, it says there, Abraham was justified, but not by works. Verses 9 to 12, Abraham was justified, but not by circumcision, which was a sign of the covenant that the Hebrew people took as they entered into covenant with God. It was kind of like uh, the stamp of the law. And then in our passage today, verses 13 to 17, we see that Abraham was justified, but not by the law. And in this account, it is clear that God's dealings with Abraham accords with salvation by grace alone through faith alone. You can't understand it any way, any other way. God determined to save that way then, and he continues to do that right now. Friends, you, you realize that uh, what God was doing with Abraham, I mean, the very fact that Paul takes a whole entire chapter to talk about Abraham as an example for us, as he holds out the father of faith, you realize, guys, that what God was doing with Abraham then was for our benefit. I mean, not only was it for Abraham's benefit, but also was, it was for ours. So there's direct, uh, this, this directly applies to us. There is continuity between what God was doing in the Old Testament and what God continues to do now in the New Testament church age. Some people want to say, oh, the Old Testament just has a bunch of irrelevant stories for us. But friends, here God had you, Christian, in mind when he declared Abraham righteous. He did that for you so that your faith would rest on God's grace. Not by works, but by faith, by God's grace. Look there, verse 11 and 12 of chapter 4. He says there, God justifies Abraham by faith, and we are told of the purpose, 11 and 12, chapter 4, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe, without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them. That is you guys, okay? 
and everybody who's come after Abraham to make uh, counted righteous and to make him the father of all sorry make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who walk also in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised now that's a lot of language right there's some timing involved there Abraham was justified declared righteous and before he was circumcised in fact, a number of years went by before God gave him the sign of circumcision. And he says, what was God doing in this time when he justified him by faith before he was circumcised? It's so that everybody who would come after him, everybody who would walk in his same footsteps of faith, would know that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in our great and powerful God. What we look at today is the fact that since God saves by grace Man must be saved by faith. In God's plan of salvation, there is no other way. Self-medicating our sole problem with salvation by works, salvation by morality, even if it look, even if it comes wearing the cloak of Christianity, goes directly against God's remedy through Jesus Christ. Okay, point number two. Because God saves by grace, man must be saved by faith. If you look at verse 13, our passage picks up the language of promise. Go ahead and look at 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world, and there you can think Jews, Gentiles coming to faith, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So here it is clear that, uh, that our passage picks up the language of promise. This here is a summary pattern of the way that God makes and keeps his promises. He says, look, the promise did not come, nor was it attained through the law. That's the keeping of the law, a work salvation. But how did it come? How was it attained? It was attained through the righteousness of faith, which Paul had just been talking about. This is a summary pattern of the way God makes and keeps his promises. He makes his promises by grace, and he keeps his promises by grace. So, friends, you see the implications as, they ha as it has to do with any sort of works salvation. If every promise is made by God, if, if every promise that is made by God is actually kept by God, well, where does our works fit into this equation here? It doesn't make sense. The implication, the promises can't be attained by works, right? So no matter what you do, the promises cannot be attained by works. Works doesn't force God's hand into doing what he promised. He simply fulfills what he promises. That's who he is. Let's look at how salvation by works is incompatible with God's salvation plan. Two reasons. First, we look at the negative reasons or the negative consequences of salvation by works. We're going to look at the negative consequences of salvation by works. Look at 13 to 15 to see these negative consequences. I'll go ahead and read that section. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Okay, so here are three negative consequences. If you're trying to work for your salvation, here are the three negative consequences about you guys or the repercussions here. Number one, it nullifies faith. Just write these down. We'll explain them. Number one, it nullifies faith. Second, it voids the promise. And third, it only brings wrath. That's your future, God says. If you rely on works for your salvation or think 
It somehow adds to your salvation. It nullifies faith. It voids the promise and only brings wrath. Even in the very outline, right, of the way that Paul, the way that Paul is logically working through these negative consequences here, you see why work salvation stands in direct opposition with God's plan of salvation by grace through faith. Why is that? And this makes sense, right? Because God calls us to believe. If God calls us to believe and we work for our salvation, well, that nullifies belief, doesn't it? We're going to explain what that means. Number two, he calls us to believe in him and his promises. Well, we just saw if, if God calls us to believe in him and his promises, well, if we work for our salvation, then it voids the promise. And then lastly, if God calls us to believe on him and his promises for salvation, if you're just going to get rid of that whole thing, well, what are you left with? You're left with wrath. We're going to walk through those things. Let's look at the first two together there. Uh, nullifies faith and voids the promise. So we look at these reasons. We have to know first what, and be reminded about what faith is. What is faith? What is this Christian faith stuff? God calls us clearly to believe on him and have faith in him. You look down at 4.20 to 21. He continues to talk about Abraham, and he talks about Abraham's faith, the nature of this faith. It says there that Abraham had strong faith. It says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced, here's the nature of faith, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. God is able to do what God himself had promised. And so what does it say there? It says, Abraham, he believed, he's convinced. What is he convinced of? Well, he's convinced of the fact that God is able. So when you think of able, somebody being able, what do you think of? I think of power. I think of sovereignty. I think of ability. Oh, what is God able to do? What does he have power to do? It is not only to make promises, but actually to fulfill them. Here's the nature of faith. It's not some sort of blind faith. It's actually faith in someone. Faith has an object, and here the object is God and his ability to fulfill everything that he has promised, everything that he promises. So Abraham's faith, friends, was a faith that believed in God and what God had said. He believed that God would do everything that God had said. That faith, that faith is the faith that saves. It's a faith that believes on God to do exactly what he says. So how does works salvation nullify faith? I and mean, that's kind of a confusing phrase right there. How does works salvation nullify faith or cancel out faith and void the promise? Uh, this word null, nullify, uh, just in terms of getting some terms clear here, you can just think of canceled out or in computer language, just think it's you're deleting faith, you're getting rid of faith, you're tossing it out. You are completely discarding it. And then when it talks about the promise being void, he's talking about invalidating God's promise. So here's a human example, and I hope that it, it captures here what, what uh, Paul is saying. Um, have you guys ever been offended when a loved one refused to believe you? Let's say that you know previously you had done something wrong, and then finally you're like, all right, I'm really going to do this. I'm really going to take out the trash. Uh, and then, let's say, your loved one 
just simply, here's the promise. You know, you go off to work, and then when you come back, it's or the thing that you said you were gonna do. You're gonna bring all of your character, all of your faithfulness, all of your diligence to that task, and that person's like, "Nah, I already did it." Isn't that to some degree? It could, can't it be a little bit offensive, right? Because you said that you would do it. No, really, you're gonna do it. I think in those moments we might feel offended because you and your promises have been disregarded. They don't really care. A judgment has been made about your lack of being trustworthy. Your character is questioned. Your word means nothing, right? And where you, you, what you brought to the table was like you really wanted the other person to believe in you. Just trust in me one more time. But they say, ah, whatever, forget it. He's not going to do anything anyways. They nullify any idea of a trust in you, a belief in you, a faith in you. They cancel it out. They delete it even though you promised to do that something, to take care of the situation, to show up, to get it done. And so they come up with their own solution. They say, whatever, this guy's not going to do it anyways. He hasn't done it in the past. I'm just going to take care of the situation on my own. You call them to trust in you. They say, whatever. And when they discard the trustworthiness of your character, what does that say about your promises? Right? They already they already nullified any act. They nullified this act of faith of trusting in you because they're kind of almost to some degree making a judgment about your character. What does that say about your promises? Apparently, your promise is not worth believing in, is it, to that person? And so they, it's as if they, they receive the promise and then they just tear it up right in front of your face. And then they toss it out. Or it's like receiving a check that says, look, you can bank on me. And they're like, whatever. It doesn't make a difference all over. Anyways, and then they just write void on it and then hand it back to you. That's what it is like to nullify faith. They delete it. They get rid of it. They don't care that you ask them to trust in you. They take your words and they void your promise. They tear it up and they discard it. Insisting that man can be saved by works is like us taking God's eternal promise to save sinners by grace and just simply writing void all over it. Why is that? Just think about what that says about God's character. It calls into question God's character, his power, his sovereignty, and his ability to save. So we've seen the nature of faith, believing in God and his promises. Salvation and works, hopefully if that illustration actually worked, uh, we see there that, that salvation by works voids God's promises, disregards God's call for us to trust in him like a father calls his children to trust in him. It also banishes any thought that God is faithful, that he is steadfast in love, that he is sovereign in power. Salvation by works says that God has no real ability to fulfill his own promise to save by grace. I refuse, therefore, to trust in him, to believe on him, to have faith in him. You see the problem with works salvation? It really makes it all about us. That's what works salvation does. God comes with his eternal power and wisdom to the table of saving man, assessing, diagnosing man's problem, his soul problem. 
He determines that, that salvation can be had, righteousness of God can be had by grace, through faith. He sends Jesus Christ to be a propitiation for our sins, a sacrifice of atonement where Christ works on the cross, bearing the wrath that we deserve. God raises him from the dead with a spirit of power. He seats him on high where he is to be worshipped forever into eternity because of his work. That's why in Revelation you have the slain lamb and everyone around him is giving him praise. But we come alongside and we say, whatever. It doesn't work like that. Disregarding God's call for us to have faith in him. Taking that promise of an eternal inheritance given by check, so to speak, and just writing void all over it. Why do we do that when our inheritance is right there, potentially? I think we kind of do that because we recognize that really our problem is with us. That's what I think we get right. Our problem really is with us. And so we come to the table thinking, well, all we need to do then is just rely on ourselves to get ourselves out of the problem. But friends, that's actually to misunderstand the book of Romans thus far, isn't it? The problem is with us. The solution, therefore, is outside of us. The solution is with God himself. The revelation of God's righteousness in the gospel. Of course, when we bring to the table of salvation a works righteous, we say that uh, our focus should be on us or on the law. But God says, no, be focused on me and my grace and Jesus Christ. The righteousness that, that can be had by grace through faith in him. When you see the punishment or the judgment here of this type of pride in and of ourselves, we see, we see in the books in chapters Roman chapters 1, 2, and 3 that we stand condemned if we rely on this works righteousness. That we will be judged. It says even that we are going to face wrath. It says even there that, that wrath is what is to be expected. There in verse 15, works brings wrath. So why is it that we insist, right, on relying on works to get us in salvation when God himself has promised to save by grace through faith? Work salvation is completely incongruent. It doesn't match with, it stands in opposition to God's salvation plan. But praise God that in his grace, he actually answers our problem, even in the objection of works righteousness. He says, it's about me. It's not about you and fulfilling the law. It's about me. And so he sends Christ, the person of Christ, the God-man, to undo the effects of sin and even to save us from our sin. And so where man creates the problem, God provides the solution in Jesus Christ. He sends his eternal son to take on flesh, to live the life we could not live, the righteous life, fulfilling all of God's standards of righteousness. He dies on the cross, bearing the wrath, that we ourselves deserve, why is that? So that all who repent and believe would be free. He dies as a substitute. He sends the person of Christ, his eternal son, so that we might be reminded that salvation is about him and his work, not us and our work. These friends are the negative consequences of working for your salvation. Why would we ever want to do that? Especially knowing that God calls us to believe on him the all-powerful one, him who is able, him who gives promises, and him who fulfills them. And so find salvation. 
works salvation only nullifies faith. It voids God's promise and brings the wrath of God. We know that the law, by the way, was given so that it might help us be reminded to turn to the person of God and not be enslaved to any sort of cold law. The law was given to expose sin so that we might seek the Savior. Well, we've looked at how salvation by works is incompatible with God's salvation plan. Now let's look at how salvation must be by faith. So here we're going to look at how faith accords with God's salvation plan. We've seen how it doesn't, or we've seen how salvation by works does not. Now we look at how salvation by faith does. First, because faith upholds grace. First, because faith upholds grace. Faith is the only way to receive God's grace, isn't it? Verse 16. That is why it, that is the promised inheritance, depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. He's so clear. So logical. That is why the promise depends on faith. Well, why, Paul? This is a further explanation of why we must be saved by faith and not works righteousness. It is in order, that is the purpose, here Paul goes, giving us the purpose, that the promise may rest on grace, be founded on grace, and also be guaranteed to all of his offspring. You have the explanation? You have two purposes. Thank you, God, for your explanation, right? Why works righteousness does not work, why it fails. This, here we get the opportunity to climb into the very mind of God and see what is it that drives God's promises here. Why is it that God is so determined to save by grace through faith in Christ on the cross? Here God shows us what undergirds all of his eternal promises to those who walk by faith. Why did God determine that his promise depends on faith, not works? It is so that all people would have to do is believe. All they would have to do is receive the gift, right? This is what a gift is. You just receive it. Christmas time is coming. Our family, at least, is uh, you know looking on, on uh, Amazon to see what we can buy other people, right? It's oftentimes a very fun time. No one has ever, in my lifetime, ever given me a gift that was conditioned on obedience. No one has ever in my 40 years of life that I can remember. No one has ever done that. All I need to do is simply receive the gift. That is what a definition of a free gift is. That's what salvation is in Jesus Christ. That's God's promise. God designed his promise to be given by grace, guaranteed by God's grace, and therefore received by us only through faith. What else is left? That is why the promise is, in Greek it just says, of faith, according to grace. He's so clear here. He wants us to be crystal clear on how it is that we can be saved. It is of faith, according to grace. That's how God gives his promise. That's how God made his promise to Abraham that he would be a people, that he would inherit a land, and one from his line would be a blessing. And this is how he justifies today, how we say to Jesus Christ. It doesn't say... That is why the promise must depend on works according to your ability. The giving of God's eternal promise and the fulfillment of it is all by grace. Therefore, all we have to do is trust him. All we have to do is trust him. 
We should respond to this and say, thank God for your plan of salvation, that you have made it the way it is. This is God's plan. And his plan actually takes into consideration your sinful condition. He sees sinful man. He sees man's wayward heart. He says, you know what? They can't do it. The sole remedy here is God's sovereign power to change. And so he says, I will take out your heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh and cause you to walk in my ways and cause you to love me. We, of course, delight in that. We still choose to obey him even though he changes our hearts there. Not only does he see our wayward hearts that have permanently gone astray, that's depravity that we see in Romans chapter 3, he also sees our inability to fulfill the law. He sees that inability and says, okay, guys, I'll say that you guys don't have to be saved by works because you can't do it anyways, and you just have to trust me. How can you not respond to God's grace and say, thank you, God? That's that's how we ought to respond here to his grace given to us through Jesus Christ. I mean, can you just imagine for one moment how hopeless things would be? If Romans 1 to 3 were true, which of course I believe that they are true, and if salvation was dependent upon our works. So go to Romans chapter 3, for example. Look there at verses 10 to 18 for a little reminder here. It says there, Romans Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 18, it says there very clearly, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That very much is speaking of heart issues. But then, of course, the heart issues come out into the public sphere. And it says their throat, that is the stuff that we speak, is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Not only, is it in our, not only does it come out in our own personal lives or our sin, it actually comes out into the public. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. How can we work for our salvation here? God says, according to his word, that even our best works are like filthy rags before him, the holy and righteous God. But friends, that is why, according to all the kindness and love of God, he calls and commands us to believe and even grants us the faith and repentance we need. We are given grace to believe for every weakness, sin. There is God's saving and securing grace for those who believe on him. Second, there's another reason why salvation must be by faith. Not only does it uphold grace, it secures the promise of grace to the nations. It secures the promise of grace to the nations. Go back to Romans chapter 4. Let's just go ahead and read 16 to 17 again. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written... I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. 
Now, some of you guys here might read 16, verse 16, and say, wait, hold on a second. Is he implying that the promise goes to those who have faith and to those who rely on work salvation? That's what it seems to say there. Speaking of the adherent of the law, in Greek it literally is of the law, those of the law. But friends, that simply would not make sense that God saves both those who have faith and those who depend on works for salvation. That doesn't make sense in the context. I mean, 13 to 15, Paul just said that the inheritance cannot be gained by the law. Not only that, though, but Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3 have thus far said that you cannot be saved by the law, but only by grace through faith. We are justified not by works, but by grace through faith. Here in 16, when he says that the promise is guaranteed to the adherents of the law, those of the law, I think he's just referring to those who are legit Jews, who do in fact possess the Old Testament law, but who also believe in Jesus Christ. Right In Romans, he goes on to say that the law is actually a, a good thing. So for those who might possess the law, those Jews back then, if they wanted to get circumcised, it doesn't save them, but yet they're free to go ahead and do that. He's just, that's what he's saying. It goes to the legit Jews who have the law, but who believe on Jesus, and it goes to the Gentiles. That's kind of the trajectory here. Salvation to the ends of the earth, according to God's grace. But these verses, once again, say that salvation must be by faith because in God's plan, faith secures the promise to the nations, that is, to all the children of Abraham. That is what it says here. The promise be guaranteed, that is, secured to all who believe. If the promise were based on following the Jewish law, then everyone in the world would have have to become cultural Jews. Right? You see that there? If the promise were based on some sort of general idea of fulfillment of morality, then everyone would have to conform to some to that particular cultural form of morality. But the promise, according to God's wisdom, is attained through faith. That's God's plan. And Abraham is the prime example as he is the father of all those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.29 reads, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So friends, to drop a little bit of work salvation into God's salvation plan hijacks and derails God's salvation plan, so to speak, if that even could happen. It derails it uh, and stops it from going all the way out to the nations. God's salvation plan is that the nations would be saved by grace through faith. Salvation to the ends of the earth. And and if you turn over to Romans chapter 15, this is exactly where Paul is going. Turn over to Romans chapter 15. If you look there in 15.9, he speaks about how the Gentiles too would glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will sing praise, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again, it said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Friends, you see here that Paul is so determined to remove any unnecessary obstacle of salvation 
among the peoples? And if you look around here, you see this mixed crowd, right? What, what is it that, that unites us together? Is it some form, some sort of first Baptist morality that gathers us together here, that brings the nations together to worship Jesus Christ this morning? Is it some sort of first Baptist morality? The answer is no. According to Paul here, all unnecessary obstacles are removed. Why is it? It's because salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. And friends, if you look around, I think, I pray, that the fact that we are multi-ethnic, multicultural, actually upholds that fact. Because what unites us ultimately is the blood of Jesus Christ and faith in him. It is not First Baptist morality. It is not Hispanic culture. It is not Chinese culture. But it is the power of Jesus Christ. And so if you just stop and think about it, I know some of you guys read that uh, Facebook post on our Facebook group and where I was writing just about how diverse we are as a congregation. And friends, that is actually quite rare. Where we are, friends, different ethnicities here in this church, different cultures. Not only that, though, but many of us have different educational backgrounds. Some of us here barely graduated high school or continuation school. Others of us here have excelled in our graduate degrees. What is it that binds us together? It is Jesus Christ. Removing those obstacles. Can you imagine if, if on purpose, we decided to be a church that reaches out only to doctors? Wouldn't someone in the community who barely graduated high school, didn't go to high school at all, would come in and be like, okay, you know, you guys all have doctorates. Do I really belong here? That's an obstacle that could impede someone's coming to faith because they look and see, does Jesus Christ only save the doctors or does he save folks like me who can barely read English? Friends, I pray that as we mature as a congregation, that our congregation would be more and more diverse, more diverse than it is right now. We also come from different backgrounds when it comes to financial, financial position. Some of us are living paycheck to paycheck. Others of us got paid lots of money in their careers and now are retired. But what is it that binds us together? Is it the dollars in our bank account or is it the blood of Jesus Christ to the poor and the rich? What else that binds us together? We are female. We are also male. In Galatians, it says there is no male. There is no female. Not saying that gender doesn't matter, but he says that in Jesus Christ, we are united as brothers and sisters in him through his shed blood and faith in him. Friends, Paul is aiming that this gospel would blanket the whole entire world and unite sinners together. That's the rub, though. To be saved, one doesn't have to fulfill works righteousness. One doesn't have to live up to your particular standard of morality. I mean, even that, you're just doomed for, you're in a position of disaster and great doom. I mean, how good do you have to be, really? There is always somebody smarter, always somebody more moral, more beautiful, more rich. That's a never-ending cycle of disaster there. One does not have to fulfill works, but one has to simply acknowledge that they are a sinner in need of God's grace. That's why he's been taking so much time to say that we are all under condemnation. He's just sharing with us what we... I think, already understand. Friends, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, do you see yourself to be a sinner? To actually do wrong things? I, I hope you do, and that's actually a good thing. But, but then do you go on and actually say something like, I think I need to do something different 
I think I actually need to make things right. And that, too, is actually a good thing, too. The problem is, though, is that you cannot do it. But, friends, Jesus Christ can. This is why he is the righteous one. He becomes our righteousness, as Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament. He can be your righteousness if you would only acknowledge your sin and your need for God's grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, you can stand before a righteous God if you would turn from your sin and believe on Jesus Christ. Friends, there is such great comfort that can be had knowing that God's salvation plan takes into consideration your very own selfish, your very own selfishness, your very own sin nature, and your very own sinfulness. He says salvation can be had by grace through faith, not in yourself, but in another. That is the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Friends, repent of your sins and you will be saved. To conclude, we see uh, trusting in works for salvation doesn't make sense according to God's salvation plan. It never has, never will. Our pastor says that work salvation nullifies faith, right? Disregards God's call to believe on Him. It voids the promise of God. We tear it right up, and it only brings wrath, as the law was never intended as a pathway to salvation. Positively, faith in Jesus Christ upholds God's grace and secures that promise, that amazing promise, all the way to the ends of the earth, no matter what culture we come from. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but are justified through faith in Jesus Christ alone, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement. Nevertheless, God draws near to sinners, despite our sinfulness, and desires to give us a free gift. Friends, all you need to do is receive it. Praise God that all that is left is faith. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, Lord, we recognize that even though there is nothing in our hands we bring, Lord, we recognize in those very words that that can be a prick to our pride. But Lord, we thank you that there is nothing in our hands we bring. And so we cling to Jesus Christ and his cross. We thank you, Lord, that you are so determined to see people saved by your power, by your grace, in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that we would be exercising faith which receives your gift for what it is. It is a gift of your grace. Father, we recognize, too, that you have called us to believe in you. Help us to believe in you. We pray, Lord, that we would cling to the promise, knowing, Lord, that you are faithful, that you are steadfast in love, and that you are able to do these things. We pray these things to the praise of your glorious grace. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.